This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello and welcome to another episode of Scholarly, brought to you by the journal ATS Scholar and the American Thoracic Society's Section of Medical Education. My name is Avi Cooper and I'm the Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship Program Director at Ohio State and a member of the podcasting team at Scholarly. Today I'm excited to be joined by Dr. Rosemary Weatherston, Dr. Molly Hayes, and Dr. Megan Hosey, who are co-authors along with myself, Dr. Allison Trainer, Dr. Rena Oddish, and Dr. Elizabeth Wilcox on the perspective piece titled A Way Forward in the COVID-19 Pandemic making the case for narrative competence in pulmonary and critical care medicine, published in June 2022 in ATS Scholar. And I am so excited again to have this incredible group of thought leaders and educators together to discuss incorporating narrative competence into pulmonary and critical care education. And I just, you know, first of all, just welcome to, to all of you. Thank you so much for joining this podcast. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. Thank you. Thanks, Avi. And just, you know, to, to sort of set the stage, I'm going to just sort of go through each of your bios just so the, the listeners can get to know you a little bit better and to sort of briefly introduce each of you. So starting with Dr. Rosemary Weatherston, PhD, she's an associate professor of English at the University of Detroit Mercy, where she teaches courses in narrative and healthcare, literature, medicine, and the body, and gender and sexuality studies. For 10 years, she directed Detroit Mercy's Women's and Gender Studies program and currently directs the Dudley Randall Center for Print Culture at the University of Detroit Mercy Press and the Mission Microgrant Program. Since 2016, she has served as a curriculum consultant to the Henry Ford Health System, developing narrative medicine-based programming for their graduate and continuing medical education programs, and serves as a developer and lead instructor in their clear physician communication courses. In addition, she serves as co-chair of the Curriculum and Assessment Committee of the Health Humanities Consortium. Dr. Margaret Hayes, MD, is an assistant professor in medicine at Harvard Medical School. She's the director of medical critical care at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and directs two highly rated Harvard Medical School CME courses. She's an active member of the American Thoracic Society, where she serves as vice chair of the Education Committee, chair of the core curriculum, and chair of the subcommittee on education and critical care for the Critical Care Assemblies Programming Committee. Dr. Hayes has advanced training in medical education research, and she's passionate about critical thinking, adult learning theory, and high-stakes communication, specifically around end-of-life and the intensive care unit. She has numerous publications on teaching, communication skills, as well as the importance of critical thinking in medicine. She's also interested in international education as the Director for External Education at the Carl J. Shapiro Institute for Education and Research, and has traveled extensively teaching about medical education. And finally, Dr. Megan Hosey, PhD, is a clinical psychologist and assistant professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Her clinical practice is in the medical intensive care unit at, Johns Hop- at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. She's a recipient of a Parker B. Francis Fellowship and an NIH NHLBI K23 award. And her research focuses on interventions that support the mental health and well-being of critically ill patients and their families. So as I think it's clear from the, the, the bios of, of this uh, amazing group, I think we're in for a rich discussion today. So thank you all so much for coming. And so before we begin, um, is it okay if we use sort of first names a little more informally for the discussion? Please. Sure. Okay. Absolutely. And, you know, I thought it might be fun to sort of start our discussion by just sort of sharing what, because we're talking about narrative competence and narrative medicine today, what each of us are reading right now. So maybe I'll start with you, Megan. What have you, what are you reading lately? 
So I just finished a book that I loved called Lincoln in the Bardo by George Saunders. There are a lot of themes about dying and what it means to live meaningfully. And so that's one I would definitely recommend. Awesome. I can go next. I actually found something uh, on Twitter, which I don't know if that's an embarrassing thing to say or a good thing to say, which is actually a picture book. There are all these quotes on there from this book called Big Panda and Tiny Dragon by James Norbury. There was one specific thing that I saw on Twitter that really stuck with me. The quote was, I can't find my way out of this hole, said Tiny Dragon. And Big Panda smiled and said, then I will come and sit in it with you. And it really spoke to me as a lot of my practice in, in the ICU and we, we can't do more, but we can always be present with our patients. So I literally just got the book yesterday from Amazon. So I'm so excited to kind of go through it. Um, we just started a new semester at my university. So I'm rereading a lot of classic short stories for my students. I think the last book length text I wrote, uh, excuse me, I read was actually Wes Ailey's Every Deep Drawn Breath where he's looking at healing, recovering, and transforming medicine in the ICU. And it was so, it was so beautifully written. And I, I learned so much about the history of critical care. So I would really strongly recommend that. And for lay people, as well as for practitioners. Oh, these are all, all you know, awesome things to be reading. And I, right now I'm reading The Underground Railroad by uh, Colson Whitehead, which is beautiful and painful and just a, such a, a, a rich, a rich story told from multiple perspectives. And so I've really, really been enjoying that. And so, you know, today, you know, we're going to be talking about narrative medicine, narrative competence, the, the, the roles that these um, concepts and frameworks play really focus through an educational lens and clinical practice, uh, specifically around, you know, for pulmonary and critical care medicine trainees who spend a lot of time in places like the intensive care unit, you know, dealing with end of life issues and sort of, you know, just di difficult clinical circumstances. But I think it's it's worth sort of starting with a sort of a working definition that we have that we can use for this discussion and a lens through that which that through which we can look as we discuss these concepts. So Rosemary, I was wondering if you could just sort of start us off with some definitions of narrative medicine and, and, and narrative competence. Thanks. Those are great questions because there's there's a lot of really different and interesting things that are being done at, at the crossroads of narrative and healthcare. I think I've always appreciated a succinct definition that was offered by Rita Sharon. She's uh, one of the founders and foremost practitioners of narrative medicine, and she always described that at its core, narrative medicine is clinical practice fortified by the knowledge of what to do with stories. So I, I think in that context, you can think of narrative competence as the skills of recognizing and absorbing and interpreting and being moved to action by stories of the self and others. In addition, though, to being a framework and methodology for clinical practice over the last two decades, narrative medicine has also developed into this you know, expanding transdisciplinary, really international field of study with masters and textbooks and conferences. So I think the idea of the knowledge of what to do to story, or excuse me, with story has really become quite expansive. You know, one of the things that really sort of impressed on me, you know, the way that that Dr. Sharon sort of defined narrative competence and sort of the, the as the field has sort of come into its own is, it, it seems to me like it's almost a, a theory of everything a little bit in terms of the way that it sort of interdigitates in, into sort of so many aspects um, of medicine because at the center of illness 
is the patient and their story and how they are, how they, you know, interact with their healthcare team and their family and the world around them. And th that's what sort of impressed me about, about, about narrative medicine and narrative competence and that it is sort of a theory of everything in medicine. And, you know, as we, you know, think about sort of how, how that gets incorporated into daily practice. And that was sort of a lot of what our article was discussing. You know, we have to think about, you know, how, how does this manifest in our, our daily work in healthcare, working with trainees, interacting with patients? And Molly, I'll start with you, you know, as a, as a pulmonologist and intensivist, how does narrative competence sort of manifest into your, into your daily work? Yeah, thanks, Avi. And I, I really like how you sort of framed it as a theory of everything. And I will say that I learned a ton from both Rosemary and Megan and Renna and Liz and everyone, Allie, working on this paper. And I think it does sort of mean different things to different people. So I'll share what I do. So I I don't um, do any outpatient clinic. I only round in the ICU. And one thing that I do when I'm on service is I sort of ask my team and insist on it after the first day that we have a human fact in our one-liner. So instead of saying, you know, this is a 58-year-old male with shock, this is a 58-year-old champion tennis player, I still have US Open fresh in my head, so I'm use that example, or a grandmother who just had her eighth grandchild. I think that helps us like bring that story to rounds and it's such a small thing. It's definitely not the whole story, but it starts to help us put the story together of who is this person as a person, not just a patient. We also in our ICU have all about me posters, which I'm sure a lot of ICUs do. And we've really struggled and worked on improving our like operational or worked on improving our process of operationalizing these to really make sure they're filled out for every single patient. And when we're in the room, actually doing our bedside exam and looking at the ventilator, we also take a moment to look at the poster and mm -hmm. understand the story of the patient. What, what makes this patient proud? What hobbies do they have? Who are they as a person? Those are uh, two things that I do daily when I'm rounding. And then we also have a few things that we do sort of as an institution at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. One of our faculty, Ginny Brady, and one of our residents, Michelle Hall, actually started gratitude journaling one Friday of the month uh, for our interns in the ICU where they can just pause. They have time to sort of reflect both space and time, and they can just journal on, you know, what they're grateful for, for this ICU rotation and then share as needed. And that's something that's been really popular. We just started it recently. And so far it's going really well. Yeah. And one of the things that comes out for me, at least, you know, hearing that those sort of amazing programs that, that you've all gotten off the ground is how sort of incorporated into the, the daily flow of things that are happening anyway, in certain terms of sort of interactions with teams and patients to sort of make it easier for people to, to incorporate components of, of story and, and, and meaning and, 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 and narrative medicine into just sort of the things that people are doing anyway. Has that sort of been what your experience is? Absolutely. And yeah, as an educator, I also often try to add new things to the ICU and we get a lot of pushback. People constantly say there's no time. The ICU is a stressful environment. It's too busy. Our patients are sick. But literally asking our teams to add one human fact into the one-liner takes no extra time and really helps you understand the patient as a person. And honestly, it's a lot of fun. We learn a lot of really cool things about our patients and oftentimes about the families. And it also helps you in the end. It saves time. It starts to build rapport. And when you're 
you know, having those difficult goals of care conversations, you already sort of have the start of a story. You get to sort of know this person. For me, I, which is why I love the ICU, I've always felt like it's a privilege to really know these people and these families and to be a small part of their story. And, you know, and I, in terms of, you know, where this is happening, right? Like a lot of this, you said, it's like one liner in the ICU, you know, and the, and, you know, ways to sort of contextualize patients and make things sort of tangible and real and connect with who they are as help the healthcare team connect with who they are as people, you know, the, the pandemic has both, I think, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic has made the need for this both more pressing, but also much more difficult, I think. And this is something that we talked about in the paper, this idea of sort of broken narratives and how the sort of the, the massive sort of social and societal stressor that the pandemic has been for everyone, but particularly I think folks for folks in healthcare, how how difficult this has been. And we talked about the, this idea of a narrative emergency, how that manifests for, for healthcare workers. And, you know, I think our, and our trainees and pulmonary critical care medicine trainees in particular, Megan, can you sort of, you know, just expand on what is a narrative emergency and sort of how it, how it is relevant for us in this moment in time in history? Yeah, my understanding of the readings and, and kind of how we wrote about it is the narrative emergency might exist on two planes. You know, the first plane is you have two stories that are seemingly opposite, but being held to the light at the same time. So for example, I'm a healthcare worker who is a hero, and I am a healthcare worker who is maligned by media and patients at the same time. I am a patient who has come to my healthcare team for help, and I am a patient who has also been inadvertently harmed by my healthcare team. So these are really sort of challenging opposite things that can be true at the same time in some ways. That's one plane. The other plane of narrative emergency that I think I understood was that when you have something like that happening, that is are narratives that are so intense and potentially not aligned with somebody's values or goals, an emergency might arise if you don't have a place to take that and to make sense of it or to sort of rewrite the narrative in a way that will help you carry forward or carry forward for your patients every day. So those were my understandings of narrative emergency, but I'm also going to punt to resident expert Rosemary to make sure that that my understanding is correct. No, I I think that that's brilliant. I actually ran across the term narrative emergency in an article by a a family physician from Canada, um, Dr. Shana Watson, and she talked about it in terms of on the patient level right, when a a patient experiences an acute illness or injury, that not only are they experiencing physical disruption, but then the story of their identity or the story of their life that they imagined projected out into the future becomes disrupted as well. So the idea that there's a, there is both body and a sense of identity and story. And she asked physicians, you know, thinking out loud for herself, that if you think about, Megan, just as you said, you think about these moments of narrative emergency when your new narrative or what the future will bring has not been worked out, or here are a number of potential stories about what is happening and what will happen. Hero, villain, I will become well, I will not become well, that there's these moments where the the narrative is not established. And so she asked 
you know, is it is it useful for us to understand these moments, not only as medical emergencies, but as narrative emergencies and see the role of physicians as people who can help create a co-narrative that brings some coherence to the patient's experience. And I think, Megan, you did a really beautiful job of articulating that that happens on the professional and cultural level as well, right? The, the future we imagined for ourselves was significantly disrupted and has been disrupted for years. And who are we and, and where will we be going, I think is something that feels like it's on an emergency level of stressor and import. You know, and I, and I guess we're sort of related to that, thinking about sort of the an individual practitioner working in the ICU during the pandemic, dealing with all that from the outside. I'm sort of interested, Molly, in, in your perspective from, you know, what, how, what has it been like to, to sort of, to, to try to remain narratively competent while, you know, all these storms are swirling around us? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I, I don't have a, the answer, I will say, I'll share some of my experiences. I think one thing for me that has been a struggle. So I'm the director of the medical ICU is realizing that everyone has a different narrative and that emergency is a little bit different for everyone. So for me, I, in some ways loved the pandemic because I sort of could jump into action and care for my team and care for patients. Whereas other people, you know, had children at home that they had to figure out, like everyone had sort of a different story. So, and I think the idea of all of us being called to action was everyone's story, but sort of this tension of, I want to do this thing that I trained for. And I was, you know, some people feel born for, but I need to protect myself. I need to protect my children. And for me, I have elderly parents. So there was sort of that sort of emergency of that sense of like, what is my duty to my profession? What is my duty to myself? And I think that is something that all of us in the ICU really have struggled with and, you know, something that we have debriefed a lot throughout the pandemic and still sort of debrief. And I think also just now in this sort of post-pandemic haze, like no one is over it. You know, people are still really struggling. People are still tired. When we try to come up with new interventions or new things to do, you know, people are just like, not another thing. Like I, I just want to, I just want to break. And I think that is sort of in direct opposition to what people feel as ICU doctors and, and they don't know what their narrative is. They don't know what the future holds. And I think that that's a big challenge and that's something that we've faced. But I think for me as a, a leader, understanding that everyone has different narratives and everyone has a different narrative emergency is difficult, but so important. And, and Megan, you know, for you as a psychologist, you know, working with, you know, in, in sort of embedded in critical care teams, how has that been, how has it been for you to sort of working with, with patients and, you know, clinicians, helping people sort of frame these, these both, you know, the illness narrative from a patient perspective and sort of the clinician narrative, helping clinicians absorb and sort of make meaning of, of patient narrative and illness narrative. How, how has that been for you in the pandemic? I mean, my first, the first word that jumps into my brain is lucky. I have such an awesome opportunity to, I think, be able to bridge a little bit of a gap that exists because I get time, 
right? Like I like to think that one of the things that I offer is a thing that most of our healthcare providers in the ICU would do themselves if they had additional time. And so for me, in my day-to-day, my, I get to spend time with the patients and their families. I get to bring some important pieces of the narrative to the table, I think, for the, our ICU teams. And I think then we also get to say, here's where a couple of the gaps in the patient's understanding live. Here's where a couple of the gaps in our in our healthcare teams live and, and sort of fill those gaps together. So I think a lot of that was amplified during the pandemic, given that our we were calling home to families and they weren't there at the bedside with us. And I think given that many of our patients were much more sedated and perhaps not able to talk to us in the earlier phases of the pandemic, I, I think that that role got amplified and I was just really grateful to be able to be there. I wanted to just pick up on two things that Megan said. One, I think, is really highlighting the the value of a team in the ICU. You know, I as you were saying that, Megan, I was thinking about all the little tidbits that our social worker will will fill in that that gap and help us create the story or the chaplain or the nurse. And I think that's great. And then the other thing is I think the lack of families and visitors like really caused a narrative emergency for everyone. Of course, first and foremost for the patients, but also for us, like, you know how it is, Avi, like, it's so fun to get to meet the families and to be a part of their lives too. And they really help in recovery. And that was one of the hardest parts for me. And I think that really did cause a narrative emergency for everyone. And that's one of the big ways I think that the pandemic has really affected this. And I think we can extend that emergency and that imperative out beyond the intensive care unit, right? You know, thinking about, you know, like the post-intensive care syndrome and sort of the the reality that we are, you know, going to be, we're seeing and going to be seeing this amount of post-critically ill patients who are trying to recover and regain that sense of self and return to the people that they were pre-critical illness. I think that is something that, you know, for us in the intensive care unit, we send a patient to a rehab hospital that, you know, that's where that narrative ends for us often, but it is not where the narrative ends for the patient. And so I think that, you know, is, is an important lens for this as well. But, you know, as we think about the idea of narrative comp- competence, and I love that term because I love that it incorporates the word, the term competent, because, you know, that is uh, the, the whole, that, that is the substructure for, for graduate medical education, you know, in 2022 is competency-based. And I love that it frames this idea as a skill, as a skill that can be learned and, you know, and grown and that people can get better at. And, and so I, I really, I love that term and, you know, it, you know, and there's, there's evidence uh, that sort of narrative competence can reduce, you know, can mitigate burnout and moral injury and compassion fatigue, which when we talked about in the paper, but, you know, we have to sort of, we still have to be able to create space sort of, and, and protect, you know, time and bandwidth for and to build capacity to train trainees to become comp, you know narratively competent so you know, rosemary how, how do we do how do we do that <laughs> and i know that you know in a, a single podcast you know we can't actually answer that question but you know what are what are some approaches that you use as an educator to to help to help you know achieve that mission 
That is the one of the million dollar questions. I do appreciate your your parallel towards the idea of, of competencies being integrated in medical education. And I think one of the things that's really important is to think about it on the same level. You, you, you described it as a theory of everything, but the idea of narrative competence is something that has the same type of iterative development, fully expert-driven pedagogies and curriculums. It's not something that can be developed in a one-off. And so I, I'll make a couple of comments and then turn it over to people who have been working in it. But I think one of the things to, to be cognizant of is that there's kind of different ways to begin it or different approaches. One, and Molly, I love this, this idea of what you described, is just raising the general awareness of the storied nature of healthcare among trainees to role model and incorporate investigations of, of how story and narrative is so central to the practice of healthcare, the effective and efficient practice of healthcare. And so those, those kind of role modeling or, or focus on narrative or story can be integrated into a lot of existing curriculum, whether that's physician communication or professional and, or physician identity or bedside training, Molly, as you're talking about. So I think starting with the idea that raising narrative awareness can be integrated and role modeled throughout trainees' education, but then also to acknowledge that specific training in, in increasing narrative competence is most likely, you know, needs the experts in that field to be brought in, needs kind of a collaboration between narrative medicine experts and physician and clinician experts you need protected time, you need, you need a curriculum around it. I think the third thing is that a lot of it is very site-specific and program-specific. So one of our co-authors, Dr. Rena Oddish, and I, you know, had, had begun this work at Henry Ford Hospital, Henry Ford Health Hospital in Detroit, and we did a search. We wanted to know what were the best practices for starting up narrative medicine programs in healthcare institutions, and we were um, really disappointed to not be able to find the article or articles that really kind of talked about, well, how do you begin, and what resources do you need, and what are some of the barriers, and who knows this? So we actually started a research project under the guidance and direction of really some extraordinary qualitative researches in Henry Ford's Department of Public Health teams like Sarah Santa Rosa to, to ask people who are on the front lines, you know, through surveys and interviews, how did you start up? How has this worked? And it's become very apparent that it takes time. It takes shared expertise between practitioners and narrative experts. And we're really kind of excited about the idea of asking and sharing with people some of these emerging practices. So I think I'll stop there with the idea that there's different levels, there's specific expertise, and that we're in the inquiry about what some of these emerging and best practices might be and, and turn it over to people who are in the clinic. Rosemary, that's sort of both like encouraging and disheartening at the same time. Like, there's work to be done, but there's not a lot of necessarily like there isn't a, a lot of, you know, I think it's, it's a young field, it sounds like, and it's growing. But, you know, if we think about sort of tangible resources that, you know, thinking about clinician educators, curriculum developers, program directors who are out there who want to start to, to do this, even on small scales. And, you know, you highlighted the importance of partnering with content experts, of course, but are there also, are there sort of um, concrete, tangible resources that, that you can potentially point 
you know, those point educators out there who want to start doing some of this work and this training with their learners that they, you know, that they can start today? Well, I think um, one of the things that has come out of the pandemic and, and as we are on a Zoom platform having this conversation is that virtual resources are now literally at our fingertips. So if we are, if they are not thinking just being limited to the people who are in their inst our institutions, that there are in fact, you know, content experts across the country, across the globe who are now able to, to do virtual work. There, for example, Columbia University hosts free narrative medicine workshops that you can attend in Polish and English and Italian several times a week to kind of begin to develop your narrative competence. There's online certificate programs. There are people who have completed their master's or have done this work extensively who are at the fingertips. So I guess one of the very first things you can do is know that there are, are experts available and literally who can be brought in your institution from it's not up to you to kind of reinvent the wheel. So I guess that would be one of the things I would point to as immediately available to people who are interested in starting this. And, and you know, as we think, you know, as we assess competence, right, we that, that's an assessment and evaluation is vital to understanding you know, Rosemary, like you said, where people are along a competency continuum, right? And so, and that their learners are at different stages of competence. So, you know, assessment is key to this and sort of understanding where, where learners are. Uh, so I guess, you know, Mo Molly, as a sort of a, as a clinician educator, how do you assess uh, if a learner has the skill or ways that they can improve? This is a tough question, Avi. I think I 100% believe in assessment. But I struggle assessing this and I am not the expert in narrative competence. And the reason I struggle is because I feel that it is so personal to everyone that it's hard to, to assess it. You know, I ask everyone to have a, a human fact in their one-liner and everyone does that. So I, I guess on some level I can say it's in there or it's not, but on some of the other sort of more involved projects that we do when we make time and space for this, uh, like gratitude journaling or debriefing, I find it hard to say, well, you talked a lot and, and you didn't. So, you know, someone is better at this than another person. So I really struggle assessing this because I think it's so personal and it's so internalized. And as an educator, I, that's very against everything I think about assessment. So I really struggle. And I would love to hear, Rosemary, what are your thoughts about that? Like, how, how can we assess this? I think that, that your inquiry or your question is certainly shared by me. It's also shared by a lot of different educators who are working not only in the field of narrative medicine, but with the arts and humanities more generally in medical education. The AAMC, you know, initiated an, a program, right? The, the FRAME program, which is looking at the the place of arts and humanities in medical education. And I actually just participated in a course that's being offered through them looking at how to evaluate humanities and arts programming. And so I think one of the things that I really appreciated about the course is it's bringing together these kind of experts in program evaluation and qualitative evaluation and looking to see what tools already exist that can be mapped on I think one of the takeaways of that is to really be clear what your outcomes are before you go in to, to, think, to think about the kind of established parameters and who's involved. But I would just uh, point to that this notion of evaluating things that can't be ticked off 
right? You can't measure it using a, a scope of any course, but that idea of being able to value things that are broader, like um, narrative competence or professionalism is something that I, that I think medical educators are struggling with in an inquiry. So I'm excited about the FRAME initiative. I'm excited about people coming together to look at the ways to, to really assess and evaluate this type of work. Megan, have you you had any thoughts or experience with this? So I haven't had a lot of experience assessing narrative competence specifically, but I can tell you in our work with psychology postdoc fellows, a really strong paradigm shift that we've seen is to move away from pathology-based assessment, so where we go through checklists of things that are wrong from a mental health or cognitive standpoint of our patients and sort of evolve towards a strengths-based assessment. And so I can tell you that that's like a nugget of a narrative competence that we're hoping we can see change is say, rather than rattling off a list of this patient has clinically significant anxiety, resolving delirium, in addition, we can say, and this patient is beginning to tell me about the ways that they're starting to cope with those symptoms. For example, they are, you know, calling the chaplain or, or spending time with spiritual practitioners. They're reaching out to family to say, was this a dream or was this experience of camping real? You know, these types of things. And so I would say that, well, I don't think we have a a lot of evidence base to assess this types of confidence, we can sort of see how we're evolving in paradigm shifts in the way we're thinking about narrative and how we assess patients. And I have been excited to know that people with you know much more expertise and experience than I would ever hold are, are deeply engaged in this, are, are designing the studies that are looking specifically at you know narrative training. And so that it has the same kind of rigorous and, and science and research and qualitative and quantitative basis for doing this assessment. Again, I, I know some that are coming out of Columbia there. I'm sure there are others. There's a lot of people interested in this. So I believe we're, we're, we're developing the tools and the protocols to, to do this kind of assessment. And we're also asking, what is it that we want to assess and why? Right. If we're not looking for a checkbox, what are the outcomes we want out of this training more holistically and what might be some tools to develop for that? So I think we're as a young field and the assessment is young and the development of the programming is young, but there's just so many really wonderful clinicians and, and scholars and artists and patients and community members who are all engaged in looking for these, this way to create this valuable programming. Megan, I think we can make an analogy in the patient side to some of our trainees, because maybe I can't say they, you know, didn't do something, but I can say that over the time they got more excited about their one-liner. Like, you know, at first it was just like a chore that the attending had them do, but then towards the end, they were like really into it and like trying to find the best. So maybe focusing on the positives, like this person seems more excited to share the story, or this person came up with a new story. I'm going to, I'm going to try to use that. I'm going to think about assessing in that way and focusing on more of the things that they are starting to do. You know, and I hope that part of, you know, we, we think about, you know, what what some of these sort of more concrete outcomes may be of narrative competence curricula. I hope that one of the one of the things on the research agenda might be how having a narratively competent 
team benefits patients. And so I guess, you know, Megan, I'll, maybe I'll start with you and then I'll ask Molly in your experience, how, how does, you know, narrative competence potentially benefit patients? I think that the, the paper did a nice job of spelling out some of the potential benefits of narrative competence. And certainly I'm, again, going to defer to our Rosemary, who's been sort of in the literature on this a bit more than I have. But I think some of the, the theorized benefits of, of narrative competence to our patients are feeling like their story has been heard and understood, having a healthcare provider who can sort of do a guidance model in a more effective or accurate way. So for example, we hear we might hear patients telling themselves stories about their illness that are helpful or unhelpful, and we can sort of walk along a path with them that helps them towards life, life outcomes that they would like to see. I think that there are benefits on the practitioner side as well. You know, I think people go into medicine for a lot of really different reasons, and training can sort of both bring you closer and further away from your original missions for going into medicine. And so what I've heard a lot of, of healthcare provider colleagues tell me is that taking these narrative medicine approaches brings them a little bit closer to their original reasons for wanting to go into medicine. Ultimately, you know, critical care is an amazing field because they save lives. And I'm even more inspired by critical care trainees and practitioners who are helping patients live even while they're in the process of trying to have their life saved, for example. I guess I'll just add that I think it builds trust. And I think that you can really sense that from a patient and, and when I say patient, I usually mean patients and families in the ICU when, you know, they, they trust that you understand them and their goals and values and wishes as, as a person, and that you're going to really be a guide on, on this journey. And I think when we don't have that set up, it's a lot of you know, do this, why aren't you doing this? Or we're doing that. And it's just so much more cold and sterile. And I, I think when you really understand them as a person, they know that, like they can sense that. And I wish I had a, a way to tell you how, but it's sort of just something clicks. It feels different in the room. The rapport is is there. And I think that it helps helps them heal. It helps you help them. And, you know, for me, I'm interested in, in end of life. I, I feel like it also helps people die well and helps families help their loved one die well. So I, I think there are a lot of benefits of it. And I think there are lots of benefits to the team as well. I, I mentioned before that it's, it's fun. I mean, I, I love rounding in the ICU. I feel like I get to meet people from all different places and all different spaces. And it's just a lot of fun. And it helps us really like be a part of the story. And, and I feel like it's a privilege to help someone live and to help someone die well, if we can't, if we can't save them. So I think it's hard to know exactly like what it does, but you can just feel it. Like we're in this together. We, we are a part of the story now and, and they trust us. It's just, it's all about trust and rapport. I like Molly that you, you were pointing to kind of the intersubjective nature of the connection that gets involved when you're attentive to story. And I also appreciated the way that, although we use the language of competency, I think that a, another really helpful paradigm or concept that was put forth by Dr. Sayantani Dasgupta is this idea of narrative humility, right? Although it may be approached as a competency that you never fully know someone else, you can never master somebody's story. Human beings are not stories. 
So in the way that you described it, Molly, you were really, really generous in this notion that that there that two humans are involved in the conversation. And so the hand in hand with narrative competence might be the concept of narrative humility as well. That sounds a lot better when you say it, Rosemary. Yep. <laughs> oh, it's not me. I it's, like that a lot. It is Dr. Sayantani Dasgupta, who's also a narrative medicine practitioner and, and really wonderful author. And I think it's easy to some to forget you know, when, when we're in, when we're taking care of patients, when we have, you know, there's roles, right? You have the physician or, you know, sort of healthcare worker and you have the patient and like that there's just sort of, there's like a solidity to those roles, but the reality is one, we're all, we're all patients at some point and two, we're all human and we are, you know, we are in medicine. And I think that's what speaks to me about the need to, to train you know, pulmonary critical care physicians in how to be narratively competent is this is just part of being human and understanding story and being able to conceptualize that and make meaning of that. It's not just about being a good, you know, doctor, nurse, respiratory therapist, pharmacist, psychologist, whatever it is. It's also about just being a human being who's trying to help another human being and help them and sort of understand their situation. So that's what really has hit home for me as I've learned more um, about the idea of narrative competence and you know, collaborating with this amazing group. As we sort of reach sort of the end of our discussion, I did want to sort of reflect back on sort of a singular moment that Megan, that you had with, with Rana Oddish when you spoke, uh, when you gave your keynote address, uh, Restoration in the Aftermath at the 2022 American Thoracic Society Annual Conference, when you, you know, you, you, you spoke about, you know, sort of this moment in history and, and sort of what it means for all of us. I just wanted to see if you had any sort of reflections now that we are, you know, about four months since then, but thinking back to that experience, you know, what was that like to sort of addressing the, the field and the way that you did? First of all, it was an incredible honor. It was absolutely for me a, a career highlight to be able to work with each of our co-authors and to be able to talk to some of our attendees about, about work during the pandemic. I think there were two moments that really, really stuck with me uh, uh, during that talk. And the first was that, you know, Rena volunteered to talk a little bit about the pers provider perspective of, of living through the pandemic and shared some really important stories, both personal and from the perspective of the, the people that she was working with. And she reflected to the audience at one point, do you know who you rose to become? Do you see who you rose to become? And I thought that that was such an important reflection that perhaps people might not have had the time to do at this stage, especially for our trainees. You know, I don't know what it was like to be a trainee at this phase, but to think about the fact that many of our trainees now, this was how they entered the field. And so who they rose to become in this time is really special and meaningful. And I, I thought that that was a really important moment. And then during my part of the talk, I had the opportunity to share the story of, of one of our patients at Hopkins, Steve Ryu, who was living a very full and meaningful life until he acquired severe COVID and required ECMO and a lung transplant. And, and we 
really weren't sure what life was going to be like for him. And so to be able to share Steve himself thanking the audience at home, not only for helping him to survive, but doing things like sitting with him, holding his hand at the bedside and praying with him and reassuring him. And for him to be able to play the piano now at home, you know, I think that these are the things that narrative medicine might be really helpful with is just understanding that each moment is really just sort of planting seeds in time. And that we're always every moment given the opportunity to keep making sense of the hand that we're dealt. And so even if things feel really raw and hard right now, finding the people who you care about and the people who can help you make good meaning out of life is something that you can do for yourself. And it's something that we can do for our patients. And so, again, this was just an incredible honor. And some of the things that I got to take away from this experience with you all and at the conference. I think that is just such a powerful way to end the podcast and reflecting on that incredible moment and experience. Any, any final thoughts that you all wanted to share before we close? I think I just wanted to reiterate how, how appreciative I am to have had a chance to work with people from such diverse fields. I know that we came to the possibility of the article as an invitation and a starting point for people with many expertise and commitments to patient care and and trainee care to begin these conversations. And so that I'm excited about the idea of continuing to learn and continuing to explore this in these different fields. So I, I guess I would just want to say thank you to all the people, those of us who are on the podcast and those co-authors who are not able to join us. It was a wonderful collaboration and a wonderful starting point. And I hope that it is for readers and trainees as well. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. I want to express my gratitude as well. Me too. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, thank, thank you, Rosemary, Molly, Megan, for coming on the podcast today. That concludes this episode of Scholarly. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast player so that you can stay up to date on whenever we release new episodes. As a reminder, ATS Scholar is an open access journal, and you can read the article discussed today at atsjournals.org.